Heavenly Father, Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, we acknowledge that uh, we can bring you nothing. Uh, We deserve nothing from you. We pray that out of your grace and your mercy, you would show us and instruct us from your word this morning. Lord, help us to see ourselves clearly and help us to take our sin seriously. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As people were kind of obsessed with status, a few years back we had friends from Australia who came to visit us in Wellington because they were coming to a wedding. They'd been invited to a fancy wedding over in Eastbourne. They were really excited to go, not so much for the couple, they were really excited to go because the bride's cousin was someone famous, someone really important. When they got to the the wedding venue, they did a quick survey of the congregation. There was no sign of this important person. Then right as the wedding was about to begin, up pulls an unmarked police car and out hops some kind of uh, heavy men with um, those radio earpieces. And then moments before the bride is about to walk down the aisle, up drives a big BMW 7 Series and out jumps no one other than the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. Now Jacinda does her best to take her seat quietly, but clearly all eyes in the room are on her and not on the lady in white who's about to walk down the aisle. Talk about upstaging the bride. See, our friends, they got back from the wedding, and uh, the wedding, obviously, is supposed to be all about the bride and groom, but all our friends could talk about when they got home was the, f- the, cha- the fact that they got a chance to meet the Prime Minister. Now, in New Zealand, we're not really into talking about who's the greatest or who's the most important, unless, of course, it's the All Blacks. We like to think that everyone is equal, and I think that's a really good thing. I think the great irony, though, is that we would probably say that we're the best in the world at treating everyone equal, uh, but that's a topic for another day. We try and downplay status as much as possible. We, We don't talk much about who is the most important. But as humans, we do care about status. We do think about these things. We may not say them because we know that culturally it's not appropriate to say them, but we do think them. They do run, these thoughts do run through our minds. It's almost inescapable. We do care about the pecking order. And into this world, Jesus comes and he comes and he comes and he brings a counter kingdom. He brings a kingdom that turns our values and our default settings and our inbuilt biases, it turns them on their heads. Uh, Over the next term, uh, we're going to be looking at this uh, section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 18 to 20, uh, and we're going to see Jesus' radical counter-kingdom, an upside-down kingdom, a disruptive kingdom, a counter-cultural kingdom. It's a kingdom where the king will come and give his life away for the slave or the servant. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's a kingdom where the, the lost and the least, they'll be treasured, over and above the great and the strong and the proud. It is a counter-kingdom that Jesus brings. And each week over the next term, uh, God's Word is going to push us. It's going to push us to radically reassess how we view ourselves and how we view our others and how we view what's really actually important in Jesus' heavenly kingdom. And so come with me to Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. This whole section is kind of set up by this one question. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, Now to begin, uh, why do the disciples ask this question? Why would someone ask this? 
The kingdom of heaven has been front and center of Jesus' ministry so far in Matthew's gospel. And through his, his actions and his words, he's, he's kind of revealed to those around him that, that, that what the kingdom of heaven will be like. He's revealed that it's going to be a restored kingdom, free from brokenness and sin of the world. Uh, it'll be an abundant kingdom filled with God's blessings for his people. It'll be a distinct kingdom, a kingdom, a place for those who, who turn away from the world and, and turn to follow God. It'll be a gospel kingdom we've seen, uh, built on the foundation that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. And the disciples are starting to pick this stuff up. They're starting to get their heads around it. They're starting to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one who brings the kingdom. But this question reveals that they're not quite there yet, are they? They ask him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Sadly, it's a very human question. The disciples are still thinking in terms of status, in terms of uh, pecking order, and in terms of who is the most important. Hey, Jesus, in your kingdom, where do we rank? What is our place? Now, we might be quick to look down on the disciples, but we do this all the time, don't we? We do this by nature. Uh, How often, if you post something on social media, how often do you check to see how many people liked it? Or which people liked it? When you walk into a meeting or walk into a room, how quickly do you assess the people who are there? Who is the most important person here? What's that person doing here? Who isn't here? Where do I fit in the pecking order of things here? We're asking this question of ourselves all the time. Who is the greatest? Who is the most important? Where is my place here? Who am I above and and who am I below? Which rung do I sit on the ladder? Sadly, we would probably ask Jesus the same question. Uh, But for the disciples, the answer that comes back to them is not the answer that they were looking for. It's kind of classic Jesus here. Uh, Classic Jesus, he doesn't answer their question directly. And and in classic Jesus, he gives them uh, an answer that actually subverts everything that they were expecting. Uh, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus says, forget about who's the greatest. The question that really matters is who's actually going to be there? Who's actually going to be there? Who's going to be in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus gives a simple answer. Those who are humble and those who take sin seriously. Who will be in the kingdom of heaven? Those who are humble and those who take sin seriously. Now have a look there in verse 2. Verse 2, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. Now picture the situation. Jesus loves illustrations and this time he gets really practical. He gets a kid and he brings the kid over and there's Jesus with his disciples, 12 grown men. Uh, Jesus plus the disciples, that's 13 men. Uh, That's the same number as a rugby league team. Uh, And he takes this little kid and puts him in the middle. It's like a footy team grabbing the ball boy and sticking them in the middle of their huddle. This tiny kid amongst these grown men. And then Jesus says, truly I tell you, that means, listen, what I'm about to say is important. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, forget about what order you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. You should just focus on whether you will actually be there. So how do you get in? How will you be in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 3 again, change, he says, and become like little children. Now, what does that mean? How can we become like little children? Now, some people think that the child standing amongst them is is a picture of innocence. 
Uh, But even though Jesus wasn't a parent, he knew enough about children to know that they are anything but innocent. Uh, We've had to teach our children many things over the years. We've had to teach them how to to talk and how to walk and how to sleep through the night and, and how to use the bathroom. Kids need to be taught a lot, but I've never given them a lesson on how to lie or how to be selfish or how to be greedy. That just came naturally. No, a child here is in a picture of innocence. Remember Jesus' illustration? This, this tiny child amongst these, power, these towering men, one child among them. The point that Jesus is making here is a point about lowliness. It's a point about status. It's a point about humility. See, in the first century, uh, in first century Palestine, a child, they had no rights. They had no rank. They had no position, no possessions. They had no significance or status. A child in Jesus' day didn't count for anything. Children were only there to be looked after, never looked up to. Now, our society tends to put the spotlight on children. We make them the center of our attention. Our lives revolve around their sleep times and their meal times. Uh, We live in the age of helicopter parents where, where parents and grandparents are overly focused and overly anxious on their children. And so Jesus' words might be a little bit lost on us. A modern equivalent, maybe for us, might be the refugee or the asylum seeker. They come across a border with nothing in their hands. They, they are stripped of all dignity and all status and all rank. And they say to the country that they're seeking refuge, they say, have mercy on me. I have nothing to offer you. I'm just here. I am completely dependent upon your mercy and your grace and your kindness. And that's the point that Jesus is making here with the child. They are completely dependent on those around them. Did you ever have that moment when you were growing up where you're like, I'm over this. I'm out of here. I've had it with these people. Uh, For me, I was was six. Uh, I had a fight with my brother and my parents took uh, my brother's side. And so I went and got my Ninja Turtle backpack, went to the pantry, grabbed a muesli bar and a juice box, stuck my stuffed toy in. I was like, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm off to find freedom. But like half an hour later, the muesli bar is gone. The juice box is empty. My little legs are getting tired. I made it like down the street and around the corner. Um, And I was hungry. I was a bit scared. And I realized I couldn't make it on my own. And so I waddled back home. And my my parents probably never even realized I was gone. As a child... I was totally dependent on my parents for survival. Totally dependent. And that's the answer to Jesus' question. Who will inherit the kingdom of God? Who will be in the kingdom? Those who are humble. Those who take the lowly position. Those who realize they have no status and no hope and no future on their own. Those who come to God and say, I'm totally dependent on you. The humble, they will be in the kingdom. And Jesus actually says they will be the greatest. The humble. Now this humility, it's not some sort of arbitrary kind of denial, like doing the 40-hour famine or dry July. It's not some sort of fake modesty or fake humility. Oh no, don't make a fuss over me. It's not a character trait to work on, but it's accepting and embracing an inferior position. Genuine humility realizing that we are no longer climbing a ladder of status but that we're completely dependent upon God and his mercy and grace 
this is hard for us to hear because so much of our lives are about moving up, about getting ahead, about climbing the ladder, about becoming more independent. Uh, if you don't think your life is like that, then just imagine this situ- situation with me. Imagine it's time for your annual review. Your boss calls you into the office. They sit you down. They look you in the eye and they say, I'm really sorry to tell you, but that promotion you're going for, uh, you're not going to get it. And actually, we've talked a little bit more and we've considered this and we've decided that rather than get the promotion, you're actually being demoted. We're actually going to move you from the position you're in down into an entry-level position. How would you feel if that happened to you? What would that do to your soul, to your self-esteem, to your self-worth? Could you hold your head high amongst your family and friends if that happened to you? Or would you feel so ashamed? It's almost unthinkable. But we are so driven and we are so focused on our status, on our progression, on our increasing independence, that something like that happening is so unthinkable. It would rock many of us to the core. But Jesus is saying here, forget about status. Forget about the greatest. Forget about independence. Forget about what you think you have to offer him and his kingdom. The greatest of the kingdom of heaven is those who can even enter the kingdom of heaven are those who are humble, those who adopt the lowest position, those who come to him totally dependent on his mercy and his grace. Those who come to God like a little child, come to God saying, I have no status before you, I have no place at your table. There is nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. J.C. Ryle, the great 18th century bishop, said this. He said, the surest mark of true conversion, the surest mark of who makes it into the heavenly kingdom, is humility. The surest mark of true conversion is humility. So who will be in Jesus' heavenly kingdom? Only those who are humble. Only those who are humble. And secondly, only those who take sin seriously, Jesus says. Have a look there in chapter 18, verse 6. Chapter 18, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Now, I don't know about you, um, this seems like a pretty confronting escalation of matters by Jesus. Uh, We were talking about cute kids, and that was kind of nice, and then all of a sudden we're talking about being drowned in the depths of the sea. And a little bit later we're going to be talking about the fires of hell. Now, these are serious words that Jesus is is laying before us. Who are they for? Well, verse 6 says... If anyone, if anyone. So this is for everyone. We would all do well to listen here. And what does Jesus mean? What does it mean to cause one of these little ones, one of these members of the kingdom to stumble? What does that mean? What does it mean to cause them to stumble? Well, I think given the weight of what Jesus is saying here, I think, I think he's talking about more than just kind of a little, a little slip up, a little kind of whoops, you kind of trip and catch your step and then you're off you go. I think... This referring to someone's stumble, I think it's, it, it's some, somehow playing a part in someone's spiritual downfall. 
kind of being an active participant in them walking away from Jesus. And so how might someone do this? Well, given what else is said here, I think what causes this stumble, this downfall, is when we fail to take sin seriously. When we fail to take sin seriously. I think Jesus has two, two areas in mind. Failing to take sin seriously in others and failing to take sin seriously in ourselves. In others, in verses 6 and 7, in ourselves, in verses 8 and 9. Firstly, in others. Jesus is saying to his followers, as, as they follow him, they need to make sure that they're not encouraging or enabling or downplaying sin in other people, in their brothers and sisters. Jesus is saying that as, as, as members of his heavenly kingdom, we have a mutual responsibility to each other to take sin seriously, to make sure that we're not tripping up or being tripped up or that people around us are not stumbling. Uh, some churches fail to take sin seriously by redefining what sin actually is. Uh, there are some places that, 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 that undermine the Bible's authority, that twist the words of Scripture, and they wriggle around to the point where they start to bless what the Bible condemns and they condemn what the Bible blesses be it kind of greed or sexual sin or pride or a whole range of other things. And I think as Jesus would say to these people, you're causing little ones to stumble. You're participating in people's downfall. You're undermining their confidence in God's word and what it says and you're inoculating their, their consciences to the seriousness of sin. Now that might happen in some other places out there, but what about in here? Do we take sin seriously amongst us? Are you willingly, are you willing to lovingly rebuke a, a brother or sister? Do you take sin serious enough to, 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 to encourage them, to call them, to admonish them, to make a hard choice to keep following Jesus? Do we take sin seriously enough that you, you'd be willing to kind of risk a relationship to ask a difficult question? You take sin seriously enough that you, you reflect on your own life and behavior and how, how you speak and you act and whether that's causing others to stumble. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever bothered to read the inside page of your passport, but it says this. The Governor-General in the realm of New Zealand requests in the name of Her Majesty the Queen all who it may concern to allow the holder of this pass without delay or hindrance and in the case of need, to give them all lawful assistance and protection. As those who have humbled themselves before Jesus, we have a passport to God's heavenly kingdom. And we need to take sin seriously so that we might not delay or hinder our fellow brothers and sisters as they journey to be with him. We take sin seriously, we'll remove all obstacles to make sure that they can make it there safely so they don't stumble, so they do not fall. But it's not just about the sin out there and others around us, but it's also sin in ourselves. Jesus says that we need to take sin seriously ourselves as well. Verse 8. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble or causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet, two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye 
than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus is saying that sin in our lives is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of entering God's eternal life or experiencing his judgment in hell. And what Jesus is saying is that sin is so serious, it is such a threat that we ought to be willing to take drastic measures to avoid it, to avoid temptation. And for Jesus, it, it, for Jesus, it's actually a simple equation. It's a simple equation. Would you, on the one hand, like to lose a hand or a foot or an eye? Because that's nothing compared to what you would lose if you stumble and fall you fall short of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when our son Isaac was being uh, treated for leukemia, we met quite a few kids in the oncology wards who had had uh, significant surgeries to have cancers removed from their bodies. Uh, one brave kid had a sarcoma in her lower leg and she had her lower leg amputated, uh, which was pretty extreme. Uh, she was a great kid, full of life. She loved her sport. Uh, she was passionate about a whole bunch of sports but that all went uh, when she had her, uh, her lower leg amputated. Now, that's an extreme situation to go through. But it was a life or death decision. Lose the leg and live, or keep the leg and the cancer spreads and you die. For the family, it was a hard decision but the decision to amputate it, amputate it was a no-brainer, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure every single person in this room would make the same decision. Now, Jesus, is, he's not into self-mutilation, but what he's saying is that to avoid temptation, to make sure that we do not fall, to, to, to take sin seriously, we need to be willing to make drastic sacrifices. And so it might mean getting rid of a smartphone and getting a dumb phone. It might mean having significant restrictions on your access to the internet. It might mean avoiding certain relationships or situations where you know the temptation to sin will be more prevalent. It might mean making yourself vulnerable and accountable to others. Whatever it is, we're to take sin seriously, says Jesus, if we're going to make sure that we make it to the end. You see, that's what it's like to live in Jesus' counter-kingdom. It's to take sin seriously. The world might say to us, it's just a bit of fun. It's just a bit of naughtiness on the side. It doesn't really matter. No one's going to know. No one's going to be hurt. But Jesus says we take it seriously because it's not worth missing out on being part of his eternal kingdom. And the world might say to us that might is right, that independence is freedom, that the great are the biggest and the powerful and the influential. But Jesus says to us, weakness is actually strength. Dependence on him leads to eternal life and freedom. Jesus says the greatest are actually the humble and the lowly. Those who come to God and say, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. Jesus, he brings a counter-kingdom. He brings a counter-kingdom, a kingdom for those who are humble, for those who take sin seriously. I'll finish with these words from uh, George Whitfield, uh, the great preacher. 
uh, Whitfield said these words. He said, Lord, give me humility or I perish. Lord, give me humility or I perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us humility or we perish. Bring us low so that we might be lifted up to your eternal kingdom. Bring us to our knees at the seriousness of sin so that we might be embraced by you in glory. Bring us, Lord, into Jesus' counter kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And we pray this in his name. Amen.